Now, I remember being in the village in, in Sydney and, you know, international athletes come up to me and say, you know, we're on the back page and the front page of the newspaper. And this is unheard of. And, you know, people coming to watch us for athletes with disabilities. It's just, you know, you don't really get the big crowds usually. So it was just great. It was just a phenomenal time. So I'm really proud of Australia and, and how they did that. listening to So What's Next, the podcast for athletes sharing their stories. Athletes spend their whole lives training to excel at a sport, their first career, but often the transition out of sport and towards a new passion can be difficult. I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and I'm excited to share the stories of some incredible Australian athletes with you. On this week's episode of So What's Next, we have Louise Savage. Now, the title of highest regarded disabled sportswoman in Australia is no mean feat, and Louise holds that for a reason. Louise Savage is a nine-time Paralympic gold medalist and four-time Paralympic silver medalist, competing at the 1992 Barcelona, 1996 Atlanta, 2000 Sydney and 2004 Athens Paralympic Games, as well as the 1996 Atlanta, 2000 Sydney and 2004 Athens Olympic Games in demonstration. Louise is also an 11-time gold medalist and two-time silver medalist at three IPC Athletics World Championships and held the world record in 1,500 metres, 5,000 metres, 4x100 and 4x400 relays. Louise went on to receive the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1993, entered into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame in 2007, Australian Paralympic Hall of Fame in 2011, and was elevated to Sport Australia Hall of Fame legend in 2019. Louise became the first Australian Paralympian to be awarded legend status. Louise then moved into a coaching role in 2004, becoming an athletics coach with the Australian team at the 2018 Beijing Games and 2011 IPC Athletics World Championships. She is currently working at the New South Wales Institute of Sport and coaches three-time silver Paralympic medalist Madison De Rosario. Louise was born with incomplete paraplegia. She was born with a severe congenital spinal condition which inhibited the function of her lower half. Louise undertook 21 surgeries before the age of 10 and had major surgery to fix the curvature of her spine as a result of scoliosis, which still sits curved today. Louise has had some absolutely incredible achievements and I have been so excited to share this episode with you. So welcome, Louise. I'm so glad to have you on here. Thank you and thank you for having me. So we kick off the podcast the same way every time. What did your childhood look like? Were you an active, sporty kid? And also a little bit of background about uh, your disability. So how that actually affected your childhood with sport. Yeah, I suppose um, I was just like any other kid. I was very, very active. I was actually born with my disability. It's where the base of my spinal cord didn't form properly. So if you know the spinal column at all, like T11, T12, it's kind of around that region and I'm incomplete. So I do have some feeling and some movement below that lesion area, but I can't, you know, run, jump or bear weight, things that I suppose most people take for granted. Um, I don't know any different. So, you know, I've been in a chair my whole life. And so, yeah, I don't think it affected me in terms of uh, what I thought I could do or achieve and I just went to a regular school a regular primary school I was the only child with a disability there and I suppose for me um I couldn't compete I suppose on an equal level to all the other kids at school you know you participate in school sport um and you know I played continuous cricket and t-ball and all those kind of things and the kids used to either push me to the bases or you know bowl over somebody or 
whatever. So, but it wasn't quite the same. So my first, very, very first introduction into sport was actually swimming. And that was before I actually went to school and that was to build up my upper body strength because I was going to have to rely on that for the rest of my life. But then it wasn't actually until I was eight years old, I was introduced into wheelchair sports. And I think that was uh, probably the biggest turning point in my life. And I never looked back. So yeah, that was probably the one moment which was like, oh my gosh, there are so many other people just like me. And this is a lot of fun. How were you introduced into the sport? Was it something that your your parents had previously done? So I was about eight years old. And um, like I said, I just participated in sport at school. And I was actually a member of my local swim club. My, I have an older sister. She was a very, very good swimmer. And so I went along to swim club too and um, participated with all the other kids and learned to swim. But when I was about eight or so, I was in a shopping centre with my parents. And it's quite funny because obviously I have a very visual disability. So uh, I remember this this lady came up to my parents and she was like, oh, your child has a disability. And she was very excited. And my mum was like, oh, yeah, she does. <laughs> um, and she was like, have you ever heard about wheelchair sports? And so she was kind of the one who said, you know, come on, you've got to come along and see what it's all about. So I went to my local wheelchair sports association and you know, do a come and try day. And there was lots of different sports on, on offer. There was athletics and basketball and, of course, swimming and, and lots of different things that I could become involved with. And, and as I said, you know, I, there was lots of other children with similar disabilities to myself. And for me, that was a window of opportunity and a world that opened up to me. So that's how I kind of got involved in it. And it went from there. I, I started competing and, and training and, and having fun and with a lot of other kids the same age. And so over time, obviously that became more competitive. What did your training regime and recovery actually look like, both going through as a junior and then as you got more senior? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a slightly competitive person. So <laughs> I think I was competitive from day one, which is really sad. But um, but yeah, I, I started competing as a junior for my state and then obviously progressed up, up the lines competing at junior and senior level. And then I I remember, you know, my first world championships, I was 16 years old and, you know, I really didn't know much about what I was getting myself into, I suppose, to a certain extent. And the, and the Australian team was going to be announced after, we, obviously, our nationals. And uh, I was announced and I, I couldn't believe it kind of thing. And they just thought, this is insane, you know, I'm going to represent Australia. But my, my training regime... I still competed in basketball um, and I used to train a couple of nights a week. And then for athletics, obviously, it was a lot more. I used to train on the track and the road, I suppose, at the age of 16, probably not as much as I, I would in the next few years after that, but probably about four or five times a week. I was still at the stage where poor old mum was still dragging me around and uh, to all the training sessions. Um, she did a bloody good job <laughs> until I could get my own licence and, and drive myself and actually put a gym program together and, you know, so many more things happened when I could, was in, more independent. What did the recovery process look like for you? So I suppose back um, when I first started, there wasn't a lot of support in, in, with regards to the kind of recovery and all that kind of things. I did do physio a fair bit, had massage. There were no ice baths when I started. <laughs> um, that kind of thing didn't exist. Um, so I didn't have, I, I suppose, the support that athletes do now these days. I'd like to think if I did have the recovery support and the, those things that perhaps I would have had a longer career and, and also perhaps not had the injuries that I did have from the repetitive nature of my sport. So uh, for me, yes, it was a lot of physio and downtime and recovery and things like that, but not, not quite as expertise as it is today and, and what they know. 
Yeah, well, you're part of it now at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. Probably see it day in, day out, how it's evolved. I do. And I suppose I learned a lot from my career as to what to do and what not to do as a coach now for my athletes and obviously using all the resources that I have available to me as a coach. Um, and where I work, of course, has I have so many more options there and resources to fall back on. So I'm very lucky in terms of that. And, um, you know, I love to still be involved in, in my chosen sport. Yeah, I think it's great you're still involved. I, I know some athletes, once they leave the sport, once they take their foot out of the door, they're, they're gone off in a completely different career. But it's really nice to talk to someone that's still in the sport, still as engaged with the sport as ever and probably... Uh, I would say, like the face of the sport within Australia? Yeah, I don't think it's for everyone. You know, I didn't really know what I was going to do after I retired. Um, you know, I did prepare as much as I could. You know, I know I wanted to still stay involved in my chosen sport in one way or another. I wanted to give back. Um, I felt like, you know, the sport had given me so much that I really wanted to try and give back as well. So for me, I, I thought maybe I could go into coaching. I didn't know if I'd be a good coach. I don't think all athletes, you know, elite athletes are, are good coaches, but I tried to prepare as much as I could to, to give myself the best chance to, to do that. So I did a number of coaching courses and, you know, got myself prepared for my retirement. And so, yeah, I did do that. And, I, you know, I'm very lucky to still be involved. I'm, I'm, I love my sport and I'm still, you know, highly motivated by it. And I love to see the guys race and I get excited and I tell uh, my athlete Madison that I'm living my life through her now, so she has to race fast and win. So, <laughs> <laughs> living vicariously, I like it. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> well, that actually goes nicely into my next question. So, there is a lot of support, there is a lot of resources out there for athletes now, but that wasn't always the case. So, leading into the 1992 Barcelona Paralympics, you won five medals in the 100 metres, 200 metres, 400 metres and a silver in the 800 metres and six in the marathon. You were awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia uh, in recognition of your athletic feats. But there were funding issues going into those Paralympics that saw the Australian Paralympic Federation have to make an emergency appeal for that public funding just to cover costs. Can you tell me a little bit about that time as an athlete, what it was like in terms of resourcing and funding and just making your way through the sport and then also paving that way for future athletes now? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, two years prior to, to Barcelona Paralympics, it was my first world championships. And, you know, I was totally new to everything and we had to pay our way to those world champs. And so obviously my family and I did a lot of fundraising, you know, back in the day. I didn't have particularly a lot of sponsors or anything like that. So we did a lot of fundraising through our local community. And then, um, you know, two years later, I was selected to represent Australia Paralympic Games. And again, no idea what I'm getting myself into. Um, but it was a, you know, a lot of fun obviously once I got there but again we had to to fundraise to a certain extent to to cover some of the costs to get there yeah I suppose I didn't know any different at the time I didn't know whether that was unusual or not and I didn't know whether you know the able-bodied athletes going to the Olympics had to pay or not I didn't know I was 17 at the time and and really had no clue what what to expect as an athlete and I suppose my family didn't know either and this is all new to them as well since then obviously all Paralympics are funded, so we don't pay for our airfares, we don't pay for our accommodation or uniforms or anything like that. The Paralympic Committee, it's, it's Paralympics Australia now, have a lot of funding, a lot of federal funding. They have um, a lot of sponsors and, you know, times have changed. The athletes are extremely marketable and, you know, it's fantastic to see that. I mean, I know they still struggle compared to our able-bodied counterparts, but we're a lot better than we ever have been and it's, it's fantastic to see the change in, in my lifetime. 
and hopefully, you know, we did pave the way a little bit, I suppose, for, for future athletes and future games. Sydney 2000 was probably one of the biggest ones. And, of course, being a Holmes Games, we really needed to, to make sure we showed our dominance, and we did. So, yeah, it was a, for me, that was one of the biggest turning points for Paralympic Games in, in, our, in history. So, yeah, it's changed a lot, and then funding has changed a lot too. I did read somewhere that the wheelchairs have actually changed a lot in racing as well. Oh, yeah. How have they evolved since you first started in the sport? When I first started, I borrowed a lot of race chairs. I also had some custom made. They were very heavy. Uh, I had no steering. I got speed wobble on my front wheels, which were actually two front wheels. The setup was extremely different to what they are now. So for me as an athlete going through a lot of changes, you know, that the chairs are now three wheels. They are very light, made of either aluminium or full carbon. We all race on carbon wheels. They cost a fair bit still, so that doesn't change. <laughs> but the technology within the chairs and the equipment that we use now is just phenomenal. Even the gloves that we use, a lot of the guys use um, 3D printed gloves now. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's very, very different. And, you know, it's changed so much, which is, is really fantastic to see. It's still an expensive sport, unfortunately. <laughs> I think we can say that for a lot of sports as well, just with the equipment. Oh, yeah. As soon as it gets to high level, there is a, there is a cost. You've had some incredible achievements over your time as being an athlete. When you look back, what are you most proud of? Ooh, what am I most proud of? I suppose, you know, apart from, well, the, obviously there's the achievements that I've had, you know, on myself as an athlete, competing in front of a home crowd in Sydney 2000, both at the Olympics and the demonstration event, and then to go on to the Paralympics. And I think that was, as I said before, it was probably one of the biggest turning points in Paralympic sport of the way it was perceived and recognised. and to have my family and friends there for the first time and really see what I, I do. And they have no idea really, I suppose. And I, we couldn't, my parents and my family couldn't afford to go to the, the Paralympics before that. So it was great to have them there in, in Sydney. But I think um, one of the biggest things I'm proud of is definitely the, the Sydney Games and the way it was perceived and the way the general public got behind it. People came out to watch the Games, enjoy it for what it was, and that was pure sport. I don't know, I suppose see the athletes for who they are and not be patronised, not be pitied or anything like that, but like really got into it. It was fantastic. And I think Sydney and Australia did such a good job because, you know, from that moment on, Paralympics has just gotten bigger and better and, you know, we receive more media coverage, more interest in, in our athletes and it's just fantastic. I mean, I remember being in the village in, in Sydney and, you know, international athletes come up to me and say, you know, we're on the back page and the front page of the newspaper and this is unheard of and, you know, people coming to watch us. For athletes with disabilities, it's just, you know, you don't really get the big crowds usually. So it was just great. It was just a, a phenomenal time. So I'm really proud of Australia and, and how they did that. Celebrating their athletes. Yeah, it's it sounds incredible. I I can only imagine how it must have felt. What were some of the like most difficult challenges that you were faced with? Was it were there any setbacks? Did you miss out on many competitions or through injury? How did you navigate that? I don't know. I, th I don't know whether there was too many setbacks for me. Um, I did face a lot of injuries. As I said before, it's a repetitive nature of my sport. And, you know, I have to rely on my upper body just for everyday life. It's not like you can, you know, injure your leg or your foot and, you know, wear get around on crutches for a while or that kind of thing. But, you know, I have to lift my upper body regardless to, for everyday life. So I couldn't rest an arm or a, a wrist or an elbow or something like that. So I think getting through a lot of that was really tough. 
I have a, a, a pretty high pain tolerance and, you know, I remember being told like in February or something that I wouldn't be able to compete in the Boston Marathon, which was April, because my elbow was so bad that it really needed to be rested and all that. And I said, okay, well, that, that's one option. What's your next option? And so, you know, I basically taped it up twice a day for the next three or four months so that I could continue and at least defend my Boston Marathon. And that resulted in my arm and everything else reacting to tape and being allergic to everything. And oh, there's so many other factors that happened. But I think every athlete goes through things like that to a certain extent. I'm, I'm pretty stubborn, so. <laughs> so I'm also allergic to strapping tape and it is oh, very inconvenient. What are common injuries? Difficult. Yeah, what are common injuries that you uh, are faced with? So you mentioned like your shoulder, your elbow. Probably overuse more than anything. I had problems with both my wrists, uh, particularly my left elbow shoulders but um the position that we're in in the race chair we, we're quite i could say scrunched up and we're in a kneeling position and my chest is on my knees and so i'm always kind of looking up so my neck and shoulders were probably a lot of problems and towards the end of my career that was probably the the one thing that got me i had impingements which would travel obviously from my neck and my shoulders and um, my hands and things like that would be numb permanently and you know you know how sometimes you wake up and the middle of the night or you have a numb hand and you kind of just shake it out and off it goes well I couldn't do that I, I would literally wake up with you know like daggers going through my arms and it just I couldn't get rid of it and I was forced to make a sensible decision apparently um, for the rest of my life to I, I couldn't keep up what I was doing because it would probably mean permanent injury and I have problems with both my shoulders right now but my, my goal in life is to not have surgery so we're, we're trying really hard to uh, to keep uh, that at bay and through strength and rehab and prehab work I, I try very hard to make that not become a reality. So I'd imagine that training for events like 100 metres versus training for a Boston Marathon would be quite different. What did the training look like for that? So I've asked you about the Paralympic training and stuff but the actual Boston Marathon what did the training look like going into that? So when I first started competing, I did the shorter events and obviously training didn't include a lot of kilometres or anything like that. And then when I decided to do more road racing and attack the marathons on an international scene, I had to change just about everything I did. So everything from my diet to sleep and, and recovery, as you've mentioned before, it was just became, I suppose, more even more important than it had before um, to try and make everything work. A lot of kilometres, I would train six days out of the seven in my race chair, sometimes twice a day, it depends. And then I would do gym work. I also did a lot of cross training. So training involved a lot of hills, strength work, uh, Boston Marathon's quite hilly. Um, so I had to really focus on, you know, weaknesses and strengths. And a lot of that was, you know, I, I'm probably the biggest girl on the circuit. So, you know, I would go down the hill really good perhaps not up the hill so well. But um, but yeah, so I had to really try and focus on, on on what I could do to try and win Boston and the other races, given my body shape and type and my history as well. But having a sprint background really did help me when in those final moves, <laughs> I could say. What did your support network look like going through sport? Did you have any mentors? Apart from my, my family and friends that, you know, understood why I couldn't do this or that or, you know, why I couldn't go out partying and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I had some great coaches, obviously. I had a strength and conditioning coaches um, and I had my, my regular coaches as well that were fantastic and, and being part of an institute system as well. Of course, uh, once I moved to the, the New South Wales Institute as well, um, I was part of the Australian Institute of Sport, but not live in or at all. 
So um, when I did move to the New South Wales and became part of that, um, I also had a lot of more support for me as well in terms of uh, nutrition, dietitian, um, that kind of thing, sports psych. There were so many other options that I had on to support me. And and now as a coach working, I have so many service providers that I can rely on to, to help my athlete and me as a coach as well. As an athlete, and I'd be curious to hear how as a coach as well, but as an athlete, how did you define success and how has that changed over the years now that you've moved into a coaching role? Yeah, I suppose to be extremely blunt as an athlete success for me was winning I loved winning absolutely that was there was nothing more the feeling the rush and how much I could push myself both mentally and physically I was always trying you know what what's next what's next what more can I do how can I change this up I have to be better getting to the top is one thing but staying there is another thing again so for me I was always looking for something else and I suppose I do the same as a a coach I'm always looking for the one percent you know the half a percent just to to make a little bit different how can we innovate how can we make changes and I do draw on the expertise of other people to help me do that I might go to my physiologist and say, all right, this is what I'm trying to do. What what can I do to make my athlete, you know, get there? This is what she needs to be able to achieve. So how can I push her physically? You know, what measurements can I do? What kind of testing can we get? There's so many different things that I suppose I, I push for now more than anything. You know, what can we do with their equipment? What can make a bit of a difference there? aerodynamics there's so many different things that we try and look at and, and innovate to, to get ahead of everyone else. I think it's really great that you've drawn off your own personal experience as an athlete and now that you have the network behind you. I think it's I think it's paying off when you see results like Madison's. I think it's truly incredible. How about stress? How did you manage stress in the sport? Yeah, I think um, that was an interesting one. I I had a manager leading up to the Sydney Games and I've, I've had one since, but that I suppose took a lot of the stress off me having someone else deal with that or help me deal with that. So that was fantastic in terms of getting someone else to deal with a lot of inquiries or getting your schedule organised. I think being organised is one thing that takes a lot of weight off and a lot of anxiety. It's funny, my athlete Madison was always quite stressed about different things and and once she was organised and that, she's she's quite funny. She's like, oh, wow, it feels actually good. And I'm like, oh, imagine that, being (laughs) organised. She gives me a hard time. (laughs) But um, it's definitely um, something that I think is is very difficult. I think you've got to have some really good friends to lean on. You've got to be able to let go. You've got to be able to spit things out. You've got to be able to deal with them or have someone help you deal with things. It's no point bottling it up. I think sports psychologists and psychologists in general are someone that's really helpful as well. Has that, so it just depends. Has that changed at all now as a, as a coach? Do you find that you're the person there trying to basically take the stress away from the likes of, of Madison? Yeah, at times, definitely. We have a bit of a policy where, you know, honesty is out there. We, we have to get on with things. We've got no time to waste. So we need to be able to say oh, something's bothering her or something's not right or she needs you stewing on something. Then she, we need to try and solve that as quickly as possible because and take that away to a certain extent. But, you know, the, the sports psych does help with that as well and we can work together as a team to, to try and help that. And also, you know, within all her other providers that she engages with as well, her strength and conditioning coach there's, there's a, and her physio, there's so many different people that, that help her to take away the stress and know that they're all working together to one goal. So 
does help. In terms of you as an athlete, when you transitioned out of the sport, how did you feel? What was it like for you to navigate from training six days a week or at whatever capacity when you finished up? What did your transition look like out of the sport? Yeah, my transition was, for me, it was something that I could be in control of to a certain extent. I knew when I had to, I was going to retire. Some people have injuries and, you know, bam, it's right there and then and they haven't had time to think about it or prepare for it and it's more of a shock, which is unfortunate. For me, I knew when I was going to retire, you know, I knew when my last race was going to be, so, so to speak. So I did have time to prepare. But in saying that, it's still a massive hole in your life that's just gone. Something that you were extremely well at, uh, did very well at, you were very good at it, you were very planned, you knew how to do it, you were so prepared and it came easy because, you know, we go to training, we do this, we eat, we recover. You know, it's, it's a system, it's a program that you're so used to. Having that taken away from you and you're like, oh, what, what do I do now? And you're just lost. Yeah. And I definitely felt that. I think for at least um, another year after I retired and then I went into coaching and I actually went to my first Paralympics as a coach in Beijing and that was terrible. Like I saw athletes that were still racing and, you know, athletes that I used to compete against and it just, it killed me. I really suffered at those games. I probably was not a very good coach at those games because it really killed me mentally more than anything. So it does, it takes a lot to get through it. And uh, again, resources around you. I think, you know, I did work with a psych and I did work with a, a few people that had gone through the same situation as well and how they dealt with it and, and moved on. How valuable do you think it is for athletes to have a plan when they actually stop the sport? So there is cases where athletes do get injured, they get into accidents and their sporting career is cut short. But in terms of now seeing it as a coach and also as an athlete, what do you think um, athletes, how far do you think athletes should prepare when finishing up? I think um, even when they're not finishing up, but during their life as an athlete, you need to have balance more than anything. And this is probably something that some people don't have as athletes. It is stressed upon if you are, you know, involved with a sports institute around the country that you should do something else apart from your sport, like study, work experience or have something or work full time or part time, have something else that you've got in your life apart from your sport. And I, I can't stress that enough to have something else going on at the same time, like definitely study because that's often very flexible now. And a lot of stuff is online, which is fantastic. That will prepare you for something in case something does happen, you know, instantly or that you do end up, you know, you've got something behind you definitely got some other interests in your life apart from just your sport. I think a lot of people, if they just do sport, 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 you don't have a balance and that can cloud your head as well. Having something else along the lines is probably the most important thing. Balance is always going to be an important factor as an athlete. What did you do as an athlete to keep that balance? Were you studying or did you have any like outside hobbies that you committed to while training? When I initially started, I did a lot of correspondence study and then from there I did do only sport for some time and that probably did not, was probably not the best thing, but I also uh, was co-writing with my author a book. So that was really cool to, to do as well, although it was very stressful at the time because it was leading up to Sydney. 
I also studied towards the end of my career as well, uh, and that was the coaching courses that I did, and it was offered to me by the Australian Sports Commission. So I did try and prepare that way, and, and that was bloody hard for me. <laughs> I, uh, I found it very difficult doing a lot of the online stuff. But, yeah, so I did do various studies and tried to, I suppose, explore what I thought I would like to do when I retired. Some people don't know. You've just got to keep dipping your finger in and seeing what, what feels right. Did coaching always come naturally to you? Yeah, I'm not sure coaching always came naturally. Um, I used to stress a lot about things and writing programs and then I thought I'd got it all, you know, done and then I'd go back and scrunch it up and start again. But along the way, I, I you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I had some other coaches to rely on to help me, some mentors. I had my own coach that I'd had as an athlete to help me, you know, look at things and, and give me ideas. And my training partner leading into Athens, actually, when I retired, she asked if I would coach her. And I think I must have asked her about 10 times, is she sure that she wants me to have a go? <laughs> um, so it was good to have her to you know, she was an experienced athlete by then as well to a certain extent. And, you know, we could try and we work things out together and along with, you know, having the support that I had. So, yeah, I would say I've learnt a lot. I've been coaching now for about 16 years or so. So, yeah, learnt a lot along the way. But you never, ever stop learning as a coach. There's always new things coming in. And uh, I've, I've probably learnt a lot more from other coaches as well, from other sports as well. That is really cool to hear that. What skills do you think as an athlete you acquired that actually helped you become the coach you are today? I think as an athlete, you learn, you probably don't know that you're learning it, but I think you learn obviously how to be organised, time, time management a lot. I think you, you, you know, you learn to be organised, you learn to be able to be focused on different things, the, the goal process and how to work towards things. You also learn about, I suppose, failure to a certain extent or how to step back and reassess things communication is probably one of the biggest things as well. I think you need to have good communication with your coaches and the people around you. And, you know, not all athletes are going to be good at that, but I think that's something very important from a coach's perspective. For me, I need to be able to connect with my athletes and they're all so different. So need to be able to have good communication. But I learned a lot as an athlete, I would think, and about myself more than anything. You know, yourself, how you can function, how to push yourself what you can handle, what you can't handle and what your edge is, so to speak. This is going back to one of the other episodes that we've recorded. It was with Sally Carbon and she was saying that as an athlete, you're constantly in an environment that's like a pressure cooker. And then when you go out into the real world, it's interesting to see how those skills um, and how you handle stress and all of those, how they come into play, the skills that you've learned as an athlete, how they can then be applied. So it is communication. All of those skills are really important. But yeah, it's really interesting how as an athlete, you develop those without knowing it. Yeah, I mean, they just, they translate into so many areas of life. And, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, corporates get athletes to speak because lots of things that athletes learn and go through and the process that they have can be related back into the business world. And so that's why they find it so valuable to dig into the minds of athletes that have gone to the extremes. So yeah, how mentally and physically tough you are as well. So taking away the sporting side, what legacy do you most hope to leave as a person? Oh, sport is my life. (laughs) Uh, As a person, I suppose um, I am a figure in my community, whether it's a sporting community or not a sporting community. I think just the awareness of of people with disabilities in general. um, I have one of a bazillion disabilities that are out there in the community. 
for me, I, I want to be seen. I want to be understood, I suppose, to a certain extent. I want people to see me for the person and not necessarily the disability, which is always very difficult because, you know, I do have a very visual disability. But I think more than anything, I want people to be seen as equal. There's so many different things that we place on people, whether they're, you know, they're, what their difference is, whether they're, you know, their race or their gender or, you know, there's so many different things that we we have stigmas about. So for me, disability, I think I would love to see it become more of the norm. Um, I know that's probably wishful thinking, but I think the more people out there that, you know, embrace it and also see us for who we are, and that is just people. I may not be able to get around this world the same as everyone else, but but I still function. I, I still have a purpose. I still am involved in my community and can still make a difference. I think you've paved the way a lot for athletes coming through with disabilities in terms of like resources now available to them as athletes. Through your time as an athlete, you talked about how it has changed, but where do you see that there's still room for improvements in terms of resources and what's out there available for disabled people and athletes? I think for more than anything, what I would like to see is there's more opportunities for people to become involved in sport. I mean, that's where I, I suppose I lie more than anything. For an able-bodied person or a child, they can join their local soccer club, they can go down the park, they can join in with any group situation where a lot of kids with disabilities or adults can't necessarily do that. So for me, I would love to see more opportunities for people to participate and get involved regardless of, you know, not everyone's going to get to a Paralympic level or, you know, participation is probably the biggest thing more than anything. And I'd, I'd like to see that and I'd like to see the profile of even elite athletes even become more and be seen as, let's say, equal, I could say that in inverted commas, um, as their able-bodied counterpart. That would be fantastic. I would love it to see our sports become even bigger and better than they already are. I think it's in good hands with the likes of you and uh, and N-Swiss <laughs> and all the other institutes of sport. I think it is it is something that's growing, but yes, I do think participation is very important. There are so many athletes that look up to you now do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today? Advice as an athlete? Oh, uh, I suppose um, more than anything, it's just like you need to believe in yourself and you need to set your goals and really work towards that and use the people around you. I mean, as a as a person and, and as a person who was born with a disability, I think I was always told what I couldn't do. And being as stubborn as I am, I was always out to prove them wrong. So. I think really believing in in yourself and thinking, well, no, I can do this. So many people have doubts, but you need to wash them away to a certain extent and just go, okay, all right, let's go out there. I'll prove you wrong. (laughs) I finish off each podcast with the same question. What's next? What's next? Well, that's a really difficult question in this time a little bit because uh, obviously the time frame we're in with COVID and, and things like that, we were hoping to go to Paralympic Games in 2020. We're still hoping that we will be going to a Games in 2021. So that is probably one of my next goals definitely is to get, you know, my athletes there. My personal goal as a coach is I would love to one day coach a Paralympic gold medalist. I've coached world champions and uh, world record holders, but not a Paralympic gold medalist. So that would be definitely my goal in life. We look forward to seeing it in 2021 then. Hopefully, I wish you and your athletes all the best. Yeah, I look forward to seeing their results.
Thank you very much and thank you for having me. And fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything crossed and we'll see what happens next year. If you enjoyed the podcast with Louise, there are many more out there that you can keep listening to. So please hit subscribe to So What's Next on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher.